My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should be not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. John 18.36 These words clearly imply that though carnal means were improper for advancing Christ's spiritual kingdom, yet had not his state of humiliation prevented his assuming the royal scepter, his followers might lawfully have fought to defend his title. There is one other example exception, namely accidental slaying, which is not chargeable with murder, when life is taken without any intention of doing so. Such a case we find mentioned in scripture as when hewing wood, the axe would slip and undesignedly kill a neighbor, Deuteronomy 19.5. For such innocent slayers, the Lord appointed cities of refuge, whether they could find safe asylum from the avenger of blood. But let it be pointed out that we must be employed about lawful things, otherwise, if we are engaged in what is unjustified, and it leads to the death of another. This cannot be excused from murder. See Exodus 21:22-24. Now we consider cases of murder. Suicide is self-murder, and is one of the most desperate crimes which can be committed. Inasmuch as this sin precludes repentance on the part of its perpetrator, it is beyond forgiveness. Such creatures are so abandoned by God as to have no concern for their eternal salvation seeing they pass into the immediate presence of their judge with their hands imbued in their own blood. Such are self-murderers, for they destroy not only their bodies, but their souls too. The murderer of another is a most heinous crime. It torments the conscience of its committer with fearful affright, so that he gives himself up to justice. Those who are accessories are guilty of murder, as those who counsel it to be done, Second Samuel 12.9, or consent thereto as Pilate, or conceal it as in Deuteronomy 21, 6 and 7 by clear implication. This commandment not only forbids the perpetration of murder, but likewise all causes and occasions leading to it. The principle of these are envy and anger. Envy has been well described as the rust of a cankered soul, a foul voice which turns the happiness of others into our own misery. Cain first enviously repined at the success of his brother's sacrifice and thus quickly prompted him to murder. So too unjust and inordinate anger, if it be allowed to lie festering in the heart, will turn into the venom of an all-implacable hatred. Such anger is not only a cause, but is actually a degree of murder, as is clear from the teaching of Christ in Matthew 5, 21-22. It should be pointed out that anger is not, as envy, simply in itself unlawful. There is a virtuous anger, which, so far from being sin, is a noble and praiseworthy grace. See Mark 3, 5. To be moved with indignation for the cause of God when his glory is degraded, his name dishonored, his sanctuary polluted, his people vilified, is a holy anger. So there is an innocent and allowable anger when we are unjustly provoked by offenses against ourselves. But here we need to be much on our guard against that we sin not. Ephesians 4, 26. A vicious and sinful anger which darkens the understanding and makes one act in a frenzy is one which is without cause and without bonds. Jonah 4.1 gives an illustration of a groundless anger. A moderate anger is when it is violent and excessive or when it continues to boil. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, Ephesians 4.26. If it does, the scum of malice will be on your heart next morning. In closing, let us give some rules for restraining and repressing anger. 1. Vapor and pray for a meek and humble spirit. Think lowly of thyself, and thou wilt not be angered if others slight thee. All contentions proceed from pride. Proverbs 13.10. The 
more you despise yourself, the easier it will be to bear the contempt of your fellows. Two, think often of the infinite patience and forbearance of God. How many affronts does he bear with from us? How often have we given him occasion to be angry with us, yet he hath not dealt with us as after our own sins? Let this great example be ours. Number three, beware of prejudice against any, for it is sure to misinterpret their actions. Fight against the first risings of envy and anger when injured, put it down to ignorance or unintention. Number four, shun angry persons, Proverbs 22, 24, 25, fire quickly spreads. Now we proceed to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, Exodus 20, 14. The virtues of purity are the basis of the domestic relations, and as the family is the foundation of human society, the class of duties here involved are second only to those which preserve man's existence. Hence it is that immediately following the commandment which declares the sacredness of human life, there is that which is a hedge about the highest relationship of creaturehood, safeguarding the holy function of the procreation of life. Nothing is more essential in the social order than that the relationship upon which all others are subsequently based should be jealously protected against every form of attack. The commandment is a simple, unqualified, irrevocable negative, thou shalt not. No argument is used, no reason is given, because none is required. The sin is so destructive and damning that it is in itself sufficient cause for stern forbidding. The commandment plainly intimates that God claims the body as well as the soul for his services. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12.1 Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Romans 6.12 and 8.13 The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.13 and 15 and 20. For a Christian, this foul sin is sacrilege. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19. If Christ was indignant when he saw the house of God turned into a den of thieves, how much more heinous in his sight must be that wickedness which debases the temple of the Holy Spirit into a filthy sty. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This prohibition is designed to guard the sanctity of the home, for strictly speaking, adultery is a crime which none but a married person can commit, fornication being the name of it when done by one who is single. As a one with whom we have to do is ineffably pure and holy, therefore does he require us to depart from all uncleanliness. This commandment respects more especially the government of the affections and passions and keeping our mind and bodies in such a chaste frame that nothing impure and modest may defile us. It requires the proper discipline of those inclinations which God has imparted in order to the increase of human species. Therefore are we to avoid everything that may be an occasion of this sin, using all proper means and methods to prevent all temptations thereto. How God regards sin of uncleanness has been made clear by many passages in his word. This sin, even on the part of an unmarried man, is called a great wickedness against God, Genesis 39.9. Then how much more inexcusable and intolerable is it on the part of a married person? The temporal punishment meted out to it under the civil law of Israel was no less than death, the same that was meted out to murder. 
Job calls it a heinous crime, a fire that consumeth to destruction, 31, 11, 12. Much of this wickedness is practiced in secret, but those perpetrators may escape the judgment of man, they shall not escape the judgment of heaven. For it is written, Whoremongers and adulterers, God shall judge, Hebrews 13:4. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers shall inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. The sin of adultery is scarcely less enormous than that of murder. The later destroys man's temporal existence, the former destroys all that makes existence a boon. Were all to take the license of the adulterer, men would in due time be reduced to the degradation of a wild beast, R.L. Dabdick. To prevent this sin, God has instituted the ordinance of marriage to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. 1 Corinthians 7.2 The sin of adultery is therefore the violation of the marriage covenant and vow, and so adds perjury to infidelity. Immorality is a sin against the body. 1 Corinthians 6.18 God's displeasure against this sin is seen in the fact that he has so ordered it that nature itself visits the same with heavy penalties in every part of man's complex being. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the, his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't. Though marriage be the divinely appointed remedy for the sin of sexual uncleanness that does not grant man the license to make a beast of himself, let it not be supposed by married persons that all things are lawful to them. Every man should observe sobriety towards his wife, and every wife reciprocity toward her husband, conducting themselves in such a manner as to do nothing unbecoming the decorum and temperance of marriage. For this ought marriage contracted in the Lord to be regulated by moderation and modesty and not to break out into the vilest lasciviousness. Such sensuality has been stigmatized by Ambrose with a severe but not unmerited censure when he calls those who in their congenial intercourse have no regard to modesty the adulterers of their own wives. Calvin. <clears throat> Let no man flatter himself with the idea that he cannot be charged with unchastity because he has abstained from the actual deed while his heart is a cesspool of defiling imaginations and desires, because God's law is spiritual, Romans 7.14, it not only forbids the gross outward acts of filthiness, but it prohibits and condemns unchastity of heart as well, all unlawful imaginations and contemplations. As there is such a thing as a heart murder, so there is such a thing as heart adultery. And he who commits speculative uncleanliness and prostitutes his thoughts and imaginations to the impure embraces of lust is guilty of transgressing his commandment. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5.28 Therefore we find the apostle did not content himself with saying that it is better for a man to marry than pollute himself with a harlot, but it is better for a man to marry than to burn. 1 Corinthians 7.9 Or harbor consuming passion. Although the sin of adultery be alone specifically mentioned in this precept, the rules by which these commandments are to be interpreted, see earlier articles, oblige us to understand that all other kinds of uncleanliness are prohibited under this one that gross sin. Everything that defiles a body is here forbidden. Adultery is expressly mentioned because all other moral pollutions are tend thereto. By the wickedness of that which all men know to be wrong, we are exhorted to abominate every unlawful passion. 
as all manner of chastity in our thought, speech, and action is enjoined by the perfect will of God, so whatever is in the least contrary and prejudicial to spotless chastity and modesty is here prohibited. Every other sexual union, save that of marriage, is accursed in God's sight. This commandment forbids all degrees or approaches to the sin prohibited as looking in order to lust. Its force is, Thou shalt in no way injure thy neighbor's chastity or tempt to uncleanliness. It requires that we abstain from immodest apparel, indelicate speech, and temperance in food and drink, which excites the passions, everything which has any tendency to induce unchastity in ourselves or others. Let our young men especially fix it in mind that all uncleanliness and all unclean conduct before marriage on the part of a man or woman is a wrong done against the marriage to be. Though this commandment be expressed in the form of a negative prohibition, yet positively it enjoys all the opposite duties, such as cleanliness of the body, filling the mind with holy objects, setting our affections on things above, spending our time in profitable occupations. Rules and helps for avoiding such sins. Number one, cultivate a habitual sense of the divine presence, realizing that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 Number two, keep a strict watch over the senses. These are the avenues which, instead of letting in pleasant streams to refresh, only too often let in mud and mire to pollute the soul. Make a covenant with thine eyes, Job 31.1. Stop the ears against all filthy conversation. Read nothing which defiles. Watch your thoughts and labor promptly to expel evil ones. Number three, practice sobriety and temperance, 1 Corinthians 9.27. They who indulge in gluttony and drunkenness generally find their excess froth and foam into lust. Exercise number four, exercise thyself in honest and lawful employment. Idleness proves as fatal to many as intemperance to others. Avoid the company of the wicked. And number five, be much in earnest prayer, begging God to cleanse your heart. Psalms 119.37 Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, James 4.4. 4. This refers to the sin of spiritual adultery. It is the love of the world estranging the heart from God, carnal lust enticing the soul and drawing it away from him. There is more than enough in God himself to satisfy, but there is still that in the believer which desires to find his happiness in the creature. There are degrees of this sin as of the natural, as there may be physical adultery in thought and longing which terminates not in the overt act, so the Christian may secretly hanker after the world, though he become not an utter worldling. We must check such inclinations when our hearts are unduly drawn forth to material comforts and contentments. God is a jealous God, and nothing provokes him more than that we should prefer base things before himself or give unto others that affection or esteem which belongs alone to him. Leave not thy first love, Revelation 2.4, nor forsake him to whom you are espoused, 2 Corinthians 11.2. We shall now proceed with the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal, Exodus 20.15. The root from which theft proceeds is discontent with the portion God has allotted, and therefrom a coveting of that he has withholden from us and bestowed upon others. With his usual accuracy, Calvin hit the nail on the head when he pointed out this law is ordained for our hearts as much as for our hands in order that men may study both to protect the property and to promote the interest of others. Like the preceding one, this precept also represents the government of our affections by the setting of due bounds to our desires after worldly things that they may not exceed what good providence of God has appointed us. Hence the suitability of that prayer. 
Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Least I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or least I be poor and steal and take the name of thy God in vain. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. Thou shalt not steal. The positive duty here enjoined is, Thou shalt by all proper means preserve and father both thine own and thy neighbor's estate. This commandment requires proper diligence and industry so as to secure a competency for ourselves and families that we may not, through our own default, expose ourselves and them to those straits which are the consequences of sloth and neglect. Thus we are to provide things honest in the sight of all men, Romans 12:17. But more, this commandment is the law of love with respect to our neighbor's estate. It requires honesty and uprightness in our dealings with one another, being found upon that first practical principle of all human converse. Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Matthew 7.12 Thus the commandment places a sacred enclosure around the property which none can lawfully enter without the proprietor's consent. The solemn and striking fact deserves putting out that the first sin committed by the human species consisted of theft. When Eve took of, stole the forbidden fruit. So, too, the first recorded sin against Israel after they entered the land of Canaan was that of theft, when Achan stole from among the spoils, Joshua 7.21. In like manner, the first sin which defiled the primitive Christian church was theft, when Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the price, Acts 5.2. How often this is the first sin committed outwardly by children, and therefore this divine precept should be taught them from earliest infancy. Years ago, we visited a home, and our hostess related how she had that day secretly observed her daughter, about four years old, in her room in which was a large bunch of grapes. The little tot eyed them longingly, went up to the table, and then said, Get thee hence, Satan. It is written, Thou shalt not steal, and then rushed out of the room. Shall not steal. The highest form of this sin is words committed against God, which is sacrilege. Of old, he charged Israel with this crime. When a man robbed God, yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Malachi 3 8 and 9. But there are other ways in which this wickedness may be committed besides that of refusing to financially support the maintenance of God's cause on earth. God is robbed when we withhold from him the glory which is his due, and we are spiritual thieves when we arrogate our, to ourselves the honor and praise which belong to him alone. Armenians are great offenders here by ascribing to free will which is produced by free grace. Ye have not chosen me, said Christ, but I have chosen you, John 15:16. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, 1 John 4:10. Another way in which we rob God is by the unfaithful discharge of our stewardship. That which God has entrusted to us may be just as really outraged by our mismanagement as if we interfered with another's trust or plundered our neighbor's goods. This commandment, then, requires from us that we administer our worldly estate, be it large or small, with such industry as to provide for ourselves and those dependent upon us. Idleness is a species of theft. It is playing the part of the drone and compelling the rest of the hive to support us. Prodigality is also a form of theft, extravagance and wastefulness being a spending of that substance which God has divided unto us in riotous living. He who remains in secular employment 
which requires him to work on the Lord's day is robbing God of a time which ought to be devoted to his worship. Ere passing on, it should be pointed out that one who obtrudes himself into the gospel ministry without being called of God so as to obtain an easy and comfortable living is a thief and a robber, John 10.1. God has appointed that men should earn their bread by the sweat of their brow, and with that portion which we thus honestly obtain we must be satisfied. But some are slothful and refuse to labor, while others are covetous and crave a larger portion, and hence many are led to resort to the use of force or fraud in order to gain possessions of that to which they have no right. Theft in the general, <clears throat> as an unjust taking or keeping to ourselves what is lawful in others. He is a thief who withholds what ought to be in his neighbor's possession as much as he who takes it from him his property. Hence this commandment is grossly violated by both capital and labor. If in the past the poor have been wronged by inadequate wages, the scales have now turned in the opposite direction by employees often demanding a wage which industry cannot afford to pay them. If on the one hand it is right and fair that a day's work should receive a fair day's pay, it holds equally good that a fair day's pay is entitled to a fair day's work, but where loafing obtains it does not receive it. Thou shalt not steal. Lying advertisements are a breach of this commandment. Tradesmen are guilty when they adulterate or misrepresent their goods and are also when they deliberately give short weight or short change to their customers. Profiteering is another form of theft that no man can go beyond and defraud his brother, 1 Thessalonians 4.6. The contracting of debts to support luxury and vanity is theft as also is the failure to pay debts incurred in procuring necessities. A man is a thief in the sight of God who transfers property to his wife just before he becomes bankrupt, and so also is any bankrupt who later on prospers financially and then fails to pay his creditors to the full. That man or woman is a thief who borrows and returns not. This commandment is broken by tenants who heedlessly damage the property and furniture of the owner. Evasion in paying taxes is another form of theft. Christ has set us a better example, Matthew 17:24. Gambling is still another form of theft for by it men obtain money for which they have done no honest work. There is an old saying, whatever is gotten over the devil's back goes under the devil's belly. Certain it is that God sends a curse upon what is obtained by force or fraud. It is put into a bag with holes, and their providence soon wastes away. God, by his righteous judgment, often makes one sin the punisher of another, and what is gained by theft is lost by intemperance in a shortened life. Therefore it is written, The robbery of the wicked shall destroy them, Proverbs 21.7. And again, as the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall lead them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool, Jeremiah 17.11. Many times God raises up those who deal with them as they have dealt with others. The fearful increase of this crime in modern society is due to failure to impose adequate punishments. If the reader be conscious of having wronged others in the past, it is not sufficient to confess this sin unto God. At least a twofold restitution must be made. Luke 19.8 2 Samuel 12.6 If the owner be dead, then to his descendants. If he had none, then to some public charity. Here are a few suggested helps and aids to the avoidance of the sins prohibited and to the performance of those duties inculcated by this eighth commandment. Number one, engage in honest labor or if a person of means in some honorable calling seeking to promote the public good. It is idle people who are most tempted to mischief. 
Number two, strive against the spirit of selfishness by seeking the welfare of others. Number three, counter the lust of covetousness by giving liberally to those in need. Number four, if thy Savior was crucified between two thieves, that the gift of salvation might be thine, bring no reproach upon his name by any act of dishonesty. Number five, cultivate the grace of contentment. In order thereto, consider frequently the vanity of all things temporal, practice submission to divine providence, meditate upon the divine promises, such as Hebrews 13, 5, and 6, be temperate in all things, set your affections on things above, remind yourself daily of the earthly lot of Christ. We now proceed to the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, Exodus 20:16. Take these words simply at their face value, and they prohibit only the horrible crime of perjury or giving false testimony in a court of law, but as with previous commandments, so here much more is implied and inculcated than is specifically, specifically stated. As we have so often pointed out, each of the ten commandments enunciates a general principle and not only are all other sins forbidden which will be allied to the one named and prohibited together with all causes and tendencies thereto but the opposite virtue is definitely required and with all that fosters and promotes it thus in its wider wider meaning this ninth commandment reprehends any word of ours which would injure the reputation of our neighbor be it uttered in public or in private this should scarcely need any arguing for if we restrict this commandment to its little terms it would have no bearing on any save that small minority who are called upon to bear witness in the court of justice in its widest application this commandment has to do with the regulation of our speech which is one of the distinguishing and ennobling faculties that God has bestowed upon Man, Scripture tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18.21, that a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, Proverbs 15.4, that an unbridled one is an unruly evil and full of deadly poison, James 3.8, that our words are not to be uttered lightly or thoughtlessly is made clear by that unmistakably solemn utterance of our Lord's, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thy shalt be justified, and by thy words shalt be condemned. Matthew 12:36-37. Oh, how we need to pray. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth to keep the door of my lips. Psalm 143:3. The duties concerning our tongues may be summed up in two words. Our speech must always be true and spoken in love. Ephesians 4:15. Thus, as the Eighth Commandment provides for the security of our neighbor's property, so this one is designed to preserve his good name by our speaking the truth about him in love. Negatively, this Ninth Commandment forbids all false and injurious speech respecting our neighbor. Positively, it inculcates the conservation of truth. The end of this precept is that because God, who is the truth itself, executes creates a lie, we ought to preserve the truth without the least disguise, Calvin. Veracity is a strict observance of truth in all our communication. The importance and necessity of this appears from the fact that almost all mankind knows is derived from communications. The value of those statements which we accept from others depends entirely upon their veracity and accuracy. If they are false, they are worthless, misleading evil.
Veracity is not only a virtue, but it is the root of all other virtues and the fountain of all right character, and therefore in Scripture's truth is often synonymous with righteousness. The godly man is he that speaketh truth in his heart, Psalm 15.2. The man that doeth truth, John 33.21, has just charged his duty. It is, the, it is by the truth the Holy Spirit sanctifies the soul, John 17.17. 17. The positive form of this ninth commandment is found in speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor, Zechariah 8.16. Thus the first sin prohibited therein is that of lying. Now a lie, properly speaking, consists of three elements of our ingredients. Speaking what is not true, deliberately doing so, doing so with intent to deceive. Every falsehood is not a lie. We may be misinformed or deceived and sincerely think we are stating facts and consequently have no design on imposing on others. On the other hand, we may speak that which is true, yet lie in doing so, as when we report that what is true, but yet believe it to be false, and utter it with an intention to deceive, or when we report the figurative words of another and pretend he meant them literally, as was the case with those who bear false witness against Christ, Matthew 26.20. The worst form of lying between men is when we maliciously invent a falsehood for the purpose of damaging the reputation of our neighbor which is what is more specifically in view in the view of the Ninth Commandment. How vile and abominable this sin is appears from the following considerations. It is a sin that makes a person most likely or most like the devil. The devil is a spirit and therefore gross carnal sins correspond not unto his nature. His sins are more refined and intellectual such as pride, malice, deception, and falsehood. He is the liar and the father of it, John 8:44. And the more malice enters into the composition of any lie, the more nearly it resembles him. It is therefore a sin most contrary to the order and character of God, for he is the Lord God of truth, Psalm 31:5. Therefore we are told lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord, Proverbs 12:22. As Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and as God is the Lord God of truth, so his children resemble him therein, seeing they are my people, children that will not lie, Isaiah 63.8. God has threatened a most fearful punishment upon them. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, Revelation 21.8. Also, to what fearful heights has this sin risen? It has become so common that few indeed have any conscience therein until we have to lament truth has fallen in the streets, Isaiah 59.14. First truth departed from the pulpits. A whole century has passed since the lie of evolution captivated the scientific world and then was taken up by the thousands of unregenerate preachers, a lie which strikes at the very foundations of truth for it repudiates man's fall and sets aside his need both of redemption and regeneration. For the same length of time, the so-called higher criticism of German neologians has been peddled throughout the English-speaking world by thousands of godless ministers who wish to be looked up to as men of intellectuality. Once truth departed from the pulpits, it was not long before it departed from the halls of legislatures, the marts of commerce, and until we now live in a world where confidence between nations is non-existent and where the word of our fellows is no longer be relied upon. How deeply important is it, then, that a sacred regard for the truth should be constantly pressed upon the young and that they should be taught that lying is the inlet of all vice and corruption? Equally important is it that these who have been 
charge of the young, particularly their parents, should set before the little ones a personal example of what they teach and not neutralize the same by making promises to them which they fail to fulfill or utter threats which they never carry out. It is the part of wisdom and prudence that each of us should be very slow in making an unconditional promise, but once it is made, it must be kept at all costs unless the keeping of it compels us to sin against God. The prohibition of bearing false witness against my neighbor equally forbids me to bear false witness about myself, which is done when I pose as being holier than I am or when I pretend to be more humble or more anything else than is actually the case. It remains for us to point out that we may violate this ninth commandment even when we speak the truth, if we speak it unnecessarily and from improper motives. We injure the character of our neighbor when we retail his real faults without any call to divulge them, when we relate them to those who have no right to know them, and when we tell them not to promote any good end but to make him lose his estimation in society. Nay, we transgress this principle our precept when we do not speak at all, for by holding our peace when something injurious is said of another, we tactically give our assent and by concealing what we know to the contrary. John Dick. Flattering a person is another form of violation of this precept. To complicate another merely for the sake of pleasing him or gratifying his vanity is to perjure your souls and imperil his safety. So also to give a false testimony of character or to recommend a friend to another when we know him to be unworthy of the testimonial is to bear false witness. The following directions, though the grace of God may be helpful in preserving these common sins. 1. Be not swayed by party spirit if you would be kept from slandering others. The spirit of sectarianism begets prejudice and prejudice produces us or makes us unwilling to receive and acknowledge good in those who walk not with us and ready to believe the worst of them. How often writers are guilty here. Denominational bigotry has caused many a man to misinterpret one who differs with him and to impute to him errors which he does not hold. Number two, be not busy in other men's affairs. Attend your own business and leave others for God to attend to. Number three, reflect much upon your own sinfulness and weakness Instead of being so readily to behold the moat in thy brother's eye, consider the beam in thine own. Number four, shun the company of talebearers and tattlers. Idle gossip is injurious to the soul. And number five, if others slander you, see it to it that you have a conscious void of offense toward God and man, and then it matters not what others think or say about you. And now we come to the Tenth Commandment. Tenth commandment, Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Exodus 20.17 That which is here prohibited is concupiscence, or an unlawful lusting after what is another man's. In our exposition of previous commandments, we have pointed out that while their actual terms are confined to the forbidding and felt acts, yet the scope of each one takes in and reaches into the condemnation of everything which has any tendency or occasion to lead into the overt crime. Here in the final precept of the Decalogue, we find clear confirmation of the same, for in it God expressly imposes a law upon our spirits, forbidding us to so much as lust after whatever he has forbidden us to perpetrate. The best way to keep men from committing sins in act is to keep them from desiring it in heart. Thus, while the authority of each of 
the first nine commandments reaches to the mind and the most secret intents of the soul, yet the Lord saw fit to plainly and literally state this in the tenth verse. He specifically reprehends the first motion of our heart toward any object. He is fenced, and therefore it is a bond which strengthens the whole. Evil concupiscence consists of those secret and internal sins which go before the consent of the will and which are the seeds of all evil. Concupiscence or lusting is the firstborn or indwelling depravity, the first risings and expressions of our corrupt nature. It is the violent propensity and inclination unto what is evil, unto that what is contrary to the holy will and command of God. The soul of man is an operative and vigorous creature, ever putting forth activities suitable to its nature, to its nature, period. Before the fall, the soul of man was drawn forth unto God as its supreme object and the end of all of its exercise. But when man apostated and turned from God as his only good or satisfying portion, his soul became enamored with the creature. Thus the soul of fallen man, being destitute of divine grace and spiritual life, craves sinful objects to the sliding of God and inordinately lusts after things which in themselves are harmless, but because evil become evil because he has neither receives them as from God nor uses them for his glory. Concupiscence then is our is that irregular disposition of soul which is here termed covetousness. The Puritan Ezra Hopkins, to whom we are indebted for much in this article, is also for many helpful points in the preceding ones, as pointing out that there are four degrees of this sinful concupiscence or coveting. There is the first film and shadow of an evil thought, the imperfect embryo of sin before it is shaped in us as, or has any lineament, lineaments or features. These are what the scripture turns every imagination and thoughts of our hearts, and they are expressly declared to be evil, Genesis 6-5. Such are the first risings of our corrupt nature towards those sins which are pleasing unto our sensual inclinations. They are to be steadfastly watched, hated, and resisted, stamped upon as the sparks of a dangerous fire, for as soon as they begin to stir within us, they pollute the souls. Just as the breathing upon a mirror sullies it, leaving the dimness there, so the first breathings of an evil desire or thought within our breast defiles the soul. A further degree of this concupiscence is when these evil emotions of our corrupt nature are entertained in the mind with some degree of complacency. When a sinful object presents itself before a carnal heart, there is an inward response that affects it with delight and begets a sympathy between them. As a natural sympathy, a man is often pleased with an object before he knows the reason why he is. So in this sinful sympathy or response, the heart is taken with the object before it has time to consider what there is in it which so moves and affects it. At the very first sight of a person, we many times find that we are more drawn to him than to a whole crowd of others, though all may be equally unknown to us. So the very first glimpse of a sinful thought in our mind reveals that there is that in us which works a regard for the same before we have leisure to examine why it is so. The second form or degree of concupiscence is harder to eject than the former. If such an evil emotion <coughs> is be entertained by us and follows assent and approbation of sin in the practical judgment, which being blinded and carried away by the strength of corrupt and carnal affections commends us into it, the executive faculty. The understanding is a trier of every deliberate action so that nothing passes into action which has not first passed trial there.
Whether this or that action is to be done is the great question canvassed in that court and all faculties of the soul await what definite sentence will be here pronounced and so passed accordingly. Normally two things uh, appear and put in their plea to the understanding or judgment about sin. God's law and God's vice regiment, the conscience, the law condemns, and the conscience cites the law. But then the affections step in and bribe the judge with promises of pleasure or profit, thereby corrupting the judgment to give its vote and assent unto sin. Note how all these receive illustrations in the colloquy between Eve and the serpent before she partook of the forbidden fruit. Why any sinful motion has thus secured an allowance from the judgment, then it betakes itself to the will for a decree. The understanding having approved it, the will must now resolve to commit it, and then the sin is fully formed within and lacks nothing but opportunity to bring it forth in the open act. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust, of his own lust, and enticed then when lust has conceived it bringeth forth open sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death James 1 14, 15 thus we have endeavored to show what concupiscence or coveting is and the several degrees of it the first bubblings up of evil thoughts in our hearts are delighting in the same and it is altogether against corrupt nature not to love those firstborn of our soul souls the assent and allowance of our judgment and the resolution of our wills, each of these is expressly forbidden by the Tenth Commandment. And if the sin proceed any farther, then it exceeds the bounds of this commandment and falls under the prohibition of some of the former ones, which more specifically forbid the outward acts of the sin. This final word then utters its solemn protest against sin in an inner life. Therein we may behold and adore the boundless dominion of sovereignty of the great God. He proclaims his rights over the hidden realms of desires, his authority reaches to the soul, and conscience lays an obligation upon our very thoughts and imaginations which no human laws can do. It would be vain for men to impose statutes upon that which they can take no cognizance of. Therefore, our desires and lustings are free from the censure, except so far as they discover themselves by our overt acts. But though they escape the commands and notice of men, yet they escape not the scrutiny and sentence of God, for he seeth not as men seeth, neither judges he as men judges. The secrets of all hearts are open and naked before him, and before his eyes not the least breath of a desire can stir in our souls, but it is more distinctly visible to him than the shining in the midday sun is to us. God's law, like his knowledge, reaches into the most secret recesses of the soul, searches every corner of the heart, judges those lusts which no human eye can espy, and if they be harbored and approved of, condemns thee as a transgressor guilty of eternal death, no matter how far thy external deportment may be. Then how vain is it for us to content ourselves with an outward conformity to God's law, how we should labor to approve our hearts in sincerity and purity before God, Otherwise, we are but pharisaical hypocrites who wash merely the outside of the cup while within we are still full of unclean lusts. How many there are who suppose God's law reaches only to the hour of man, and that though they entertain and cherish wicked desires and evil purposes in their heart, so long as these break not forth into external crimes, they will not be charged to their account, but the day of judgment will show it as far otherwise. How very few reflect upon heart sins. How very few pray, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, and cannot be imposed upon by external shows. See here the wisdom of God in setting this commandment at the close of the Decalogue as offense and guard to all the rest, 
it is from inward defilements of the soul that all visible sins of our acts and lives have their rise. All Sabbath-breaking proceeds from the restlessness which is born of unholy desire. Out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murderers, adulterers, and so forth, Matthew 15:9. Observe well that Christ places evil thoughts in the front as the leader of this vile regiment. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not set thy heart upon, nor have the least hankering after what belongs to another. An objector may say it is impossible to prevent the desire for what we admire, very true, yet in fact that is revealed the fallen condition of man, the desperate wickedness of his heart, and that such desire is sinful and damning is only discovered in the light of his commandment. He who honestly faces this final word in the Decalogue must be convicted of his sinfulness and brought to realize his helplessness, which is its ultimate design. The law is given to demonstrate that our case is hopeless in ourselves to shut us up to Christ. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.